Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Rabble of Blasphemous Conspirators, Proclamation and Reception of the Early Believers. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June 26, 2011. After living in total obscurity most of his life, Jesus burst onto the stage of history as the sent one from God. He traveled throughout all the towns and villages of Galilee, teaching, preaching, healing, and announcing the coming of God's reign and rule. Rumors spread like a prairie fire, and before long the dregs of society flocked to him. The diseased, epileptics, paralytics, the poor, prisoners, crazy people with demons, and as Matthew 4.24 puts it, those suffering severe pain. Jesus healed these people. He said that the kingdom of God meant health and wholeness for everyone. The crowds got bigger. When Jesus saw the crowds, says Matthew 10.36, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The task was overwhelming, like a ripe harvest without enough farmhands. Ask God for more compassionate healers, said Jesus. Better yet, he said to his twelve disciples, you go and do what I have done. As the Father sent me, I now send you. In her book, Jesus Free, Feeding, Healing, Raising the Dead, Sarah Miles observes that a Jesus freak is a person who lives as if you were Jesus. Feed the poor, cure the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, bring the outsiders inside, make clean all that is dirty. And so the man sent from God sent the twelve disciples to preach teach, and heal. He who receives you receives me, he said, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Spread the compassion of God with the same generosity that you've experienced. Freely you have received, freely give. Announce God's peace to every village and home you enter. At this point, the story takes a strange turn. Proclamation of the message was one thing. Reception of the messengers was quite another. Jesus warned that his mission and message were deeply divisive. Religious zealots would flog them. State powers would arrest them. The announcement of divine healing would divide families. In a strange paradox, those who cast out demons would be scapegoated as demons. Hatreds and persecutions would get so bad, said Jesus, that anyone who offered his sent ones a mere cup of cold water would receive a divine reward. As the decades rolled by, these messengers of divine healing experienced social harassment. The Jesus freaks were viewed by many as just that, freaks. 
Those who announce God's inclusion of all experience social exclusion by many. In one snapshot from the early 3rd century, the Roman lawyer and Christian, Minucius Felix, pictures how Roman society viewed believers. His dialogue between two friends, called the Octavius, is a short text and surprisingly accessible to a general readership. In the first half of the dialogue, Cecilius presents his pagan criticisms. Since the Christian sect was new and novel and couldn't claim an ancient pedigree, it was automatically suspect. Christians, he said, were unlettered and unlearned, utter bores and yokels, ungraced by any manners or culture. In style and content, their scriptures were crude. Believers adhered to absurd doctrines like the resurrection of the body and providence. Rumors about their cannibalism, incest, and infanticide were well known. They were antisocial, avoiding the theater and the games, and apolitical, refusing to run for office. The Christians, said Cecilius, do not understand their civic duty. In response, the Christian Octavius barely mentions the Bible, for it would have been rejected out of hand. Nor does he incorporate any theology into his argument. Rather, he appealed to his audience on their own grounds by interacting with dozens of pagan philosophers, poets, and sages. Most interestingly, he does not deny that most Christians were poor and uneducated, or that they didn't participate in Roman society. At the end of the story, the pagan Cecilius converts. And so the author, Minucius Felix, concludes, I was completely lost in profound amazement at the wealth of proofs, examples, and authoritative quotations he had used to illustrate matter easier to feel than to express. By parrying spiteful critics with their own weapons, the arms of philosophers, he had shown the truth to be so simple as well as so attractive. Well, maybe. It's a fascinating and complex historical question to what extent the early Christians lived in a sort of social ghetto isolated from mainstream Roman society, and the degree to which they slowly but surely emerged and permeated the educated and professional classes. The Octavius, says the translator Clark, forms a valuable literary addition to that historical picture of gradual sophistication, of a church starting on that long and indeed never-ending task of coming to terms with its secular milieu. And for further reflections, Compare these two different descriptions of the Christian relationship to Roman society by the same author, Tertullian, who wrote at the end of the second century. First of all, Tertullian writes, We are only of yesterday and have filled everything you have, cities, apartment blocks, forts, towns, marketplaces, even the military camps, tribes, town councils, the palace, the senate, the forum. 
we have left you only the temples. On the other hand, a chapter later, Tertullian writes, We Christians shrink from all burning desires for renown and position. There is nothing more foreign to us than affairs of the state. And then next, from the Octavius by Felix Minucius, which I've just mentioned, consider these two passages by the pagan critic. Isn't it scandalous that the Roman god should be mobbed by a gang of outlawed and reckless desperados? They have collected from the lowest possible dregs of society the more ignorant fools, together with gullible women. They have thus formed a rabble of blasphemous conspirators. They despise our temples as being no more than sepulchres. They spit after our gods. They sneer at our rites. And, fantastic though it is, our priests they pity, pitiable themselves. They scorn the purple robes of public office, though they go about in rags themselves. You do not go to our shows. You take no part in our processions. You are not present at our public banquets. You shrink in horror from our sacred games from food ritually dedicated by our priests, from drink hallowed by libation poured upon our altars. Such is your dread of the very gods you deny. You do not bind your head with flowers. You do not honor your body with perfumes, ointments you reserve for funerals. But even to your tombs you deny garlands. You anemic, neurotic creatures, you indeed deserve to be pitied, but by our gods. The result is, you pitiable fools, that you have no enjoyment of life while you wait for the new life which you will never have. If you have not been privileged to understand the concerns of a citizen, you most surely have been denied discussion of the affairs of heaven. And for your further reflection, the extent to which early Christians permeated mainstream Roman society is unclear. But to what extent do you think it is even good or desirable to do so? A rabble of blasphemous conspirators. For books this week, I review Mary Lynn Robinson. The title, Absence of Mind, The Dispelling of Inwardness from the Modern Myth of the Self. New Haven, Yale University Press, 210 pages, the year 2010, 158 pages. Marilyn Robinson is best known for her novel, Gilead, which won the 2005 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in its follow-up volume called Home in the year 2009. In this short book, which originated as four Terry lectures on science and religion at Yale, she critiques what I would call scientism, the belief that natural science is the only or the best method of reliable knowledge about what is worth knowing. Positivism makes the epistemological claim that science is the only way to know. 
Well, materialism makes the ontological claim that the physical world is the only thing there is to know. Robinson coins the delightful word parascience as she takes on the modernist Rorty, Dennett, Pinker, Dawkins, E.O. Wilson, and others whose specialty is what she calls a hermeneutics of condescension. Robinson observes that one of the chief characteristics of parascience is the myth of the threshold, that arbitrary and self-serving notion that we alone today know better than our unfortunate forebears who adhered to beliefs that, thanks to science, have been exposed for all time and for all purposes as naive and untenable, supplanted by a better understanding. And this despite the fact that the major claimants for threshold advances in knowledge, like Comte, Darwin, Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, and Skinner, all propose universal theories that are mutually incompatible. These universal theories applied to all people of all time and space also ignore one of our most basic sources of knowledge, the essential elements of experience as mediated by the conscious self, compassion and conscience, feeling and thinking, wonder and comprehension, thought and perception, art and beauty, guilt and pleasure. In Freud's parapsychology, for example, the alienated self is not to be trusted. In evolution, the common experience of altruism remains a problem. Nevertheless, concludes Robinson, here we are, a gaudy efflorescence of consciousness. She proposes that the core assumption that remains unchallenged and unquestioned through all the variations within the verse traditions of modern thought is that the experience and testimony of the individual mind is to be explained away, excluded from consideration when any rational account is made of the nature of human being and of being human altogether. Her collection of lectures does a great job of showing how and why such parascience fails in its account of what it means to be human. The author is Marilyn Robinson, the title, Absence of Mind. For film this week, I review Howard Zinn, You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. The film is from the year 2004. To be neutral, says the radical historian Howard Zinn, is to collaborate with injustice. This 78-minute documentary captures Zinn's personal story, his warmth and affability that belied his moral outrage, and his life of political activism. Howard Zinn, 1922 to 2010, grew up in the tenement slums of Brooklyn. His father was a waiter with a fourth grade education. His mother finished the seventh grade. After high school, he worked for three years in the shipyards, then joined the Air Force, and after that started college at the age of 27. After earning his doctorate in history at Columbia University, Zinn taught at Spelman College until he was fired. And then from 1964 until 1988, he was professor of political science at Boston University. The film highlights quotations from Howard Zinn's 30 books, 
It uses archival footage and incorporates reflections from friends like Alice Walker, Daniel Berrigan, and Noam Chomsky. Zinn dedicated his life to awakening a greater consciousness of class conflict, racial injustice, sexual inequality, and national arrogance, especially of those as, as those are expressed in the marriage of predatory capitalism, permanent militarism, government power, and unjust laws. It's extremely important, says Zinn, that citizens thus develop independent critical judgment and learn a different sort of history, one that will make us all skeptical of what we've heard from authority, and that will foster rather than suppress what he calls a permanent adversarial culture. Howard Zinn, you can't be neutral on a moving train. And finally for poetry this week, we posted a poem called The Valley of Vision. It's taken from a book by the same title, The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, edited by Arthur Bennett. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. The Valley of Vision. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June 26, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.